So go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. You know, I think there's so many great lessons for us in the book of Genesis. And we're so blessed to be able to learn from them. Instead of going through these lessons ourselves, going through those hard times and learning from our errors, we have them there, right there in our laps, these lessons. Someone said experience is the best teacher, and I believe that's true, but it doesn't have to be our experience. We can learn from other people's experience. Romans 15 verse 4 says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Spirit might have hope. So, yeah, let's learn today through the experiences of Abraham and Lot. And you might recall last week we left off, we've been looking at Abram and this great man of God. And you might recall we left off with an encouraging note. We should be encouraged seeing the mistakes that Abraham made. He failed miserably by going down to Egypt. God had given him no direction to leave the promised land, to leave Canaan, and to go down into Egypt. And what he should have done was just trusted the Lord, trusted that the Lord was going to take care of him and see him through this crisis that he was facing, this famine. Abraham, he's known as the father of faith. And yet, this is what's encouraging to me. He's not a perfect man. He's just a man. And again, that's wildly encouraging to me. It's so great to understand that God uses imperfect people. Our failures do not necessarily disqualify us from being used by God. God uses people that have failed, right? That are failing. He uses imperfect people. And to that, I just say, thank you, Lord Jesus. Because, you know, if you're like me, I want to be used by God. If you're like me, well, you know, I've failed. But I'm not disqualified, and that's such good news. I've made mistakes, and there are many mistakes in my life. It's so encouraging to me to understand if God can use a man like Abraham, he can use someone like me. He can use someone like you. And you might also remember last week we saw Abraham. He falters in his faith. He's faced with this crisis. He's faced with this famine. And instead of looking to God and trusting in his provision for him, what does he do? He turns to his own understanding. He sees the circumstances. He takes stock of the situation with his own understanding. And he makes a decision. He takes matters into his own hand. He makes this decision. He goes down to Egypt, which Egypt in the Bible is always a type or it's always a picture of the world. In not waiting and trusting in the Lord, Abram takes steps based on what he thinks is the right thing to do. And as a result, we saw last week that he really, he really makes a mess of the situation. And the mess that Abraham gets himself into, it started by not trusting in the Lord. That led to lying, saying Sarai was his sister. And that snowballed into Abram watching another man take Sarai, his wife, into his harem. And you know, God is so good. 
God steps in, not just to deliver Abram and Sarah from this terrible situation, but he steps in to protect the promise that he has made of bringing the Messiah into the world through Abram and Sarai. Abraham then receives a stinging rebuke from this pagan king. And, you know, I'm sure Abram's just humbled. And now we're going to learn what we're to do when we fail. Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with them to the south. So Abraham initially was in Canaan. He left Canaan. He goes down into Egypt. Now we're told that he's leaving Egypt and he's going into the land of Canaan. It says into the south. It means the south, the southern part of Canaan. He's failed and he's sinned in front of his wife, in front of his neighbors. And I'm sure at this point in time, he's done a lot of damage to his marriage through <laughs> standing by seeing another man take Sarai into his harem. And he's probably shaken Sarai's trust in him, confidence in him. Maybe he's made it difficult for her to respect him. There's all kinds of damage probably done to their marriage at this point. And you know, I'm confident that this excursion down into Egypt, lying about Sarai and seeing her taken by another man into the harem, I'm sure that that made for a pretty quiet camel ride back to the land of Canaan. So, I mean, you can imagine the tension. Have you ever been there in the car? You're going someplace and you know, you just like, oh, whatever you do, please, honey, don't talk to me right now because I'm afraid of what you might say. Anyway, verse two, Abram was very rich in livestock in silver and gold. And Abraham's a rich man and he loves God. He's a worshiper of God. We need to be careful right here, I think, okay? It's easy for someone that does not have any wealth or has very little wealth to misunderstand those that are wealthy in the body of Christ. Now, of course, we reject the teaching that if you have faith, God will bless you financially. He'll bless you with riches. I mean, that's just pure nonsense. Because I'm telling you, I know great men and women of faith who are suffering through what we would call poverty, but they're amazing men and women of God. We should never view wealth in a Christian's life as something that's carnal. It's just not the case. There's no indication that Abram's wealth or a pursuit of wealth was a driving force in his life. Wealth in a non-Christian's life, well, that can be a curse, but in the life of a believer, one who's sold out for Jesus Christ, it can be a great blessing. Whatever it is that the Lord entrusts to you, wealth or children or whatever the case may be, he calls us to be a good steward of those things that he entrusts to us. And there are temptations that come with having a certain degree of wealth that those of us that don't have wealth, I mean, we're never going to face those types of temptations necessarily. A person who's wealthy is not necessarily a carnal Christian. There are people in the body that God has given the gift of giving to. 
He's given them this gift. And then what he does is he funnels finances through them. They become a conduit for God to just pour money into the expansion of his kingdom. And God gives them to the body as great blessings. And you may never hear about these people because you know what? They're not drawing attention to themselves. What they're doing is they're faithfully being good stewards of not only the resources, but also the gifts that God has given them. And they're just laying up treasures in, in heaven for themselves. Now, that being said, a lot of Abram's wealth, or at least to some degree, came as a result of Abram's lying and his scheming. And the Bible teaches us that wealth that's gained through dishonesty, you know, it's only going to bring heartache. It's only going to bring, you know, sorrow into your life. It's just going to bring difficulties into your life. And as we go through Abram's story, we're going to see problems that just spring up in Abram's life as a result of his sin as a result of this sin of dishonesty. We're going to see problems that arise in his life through Hagar. Hagar was one of the servants that he received. It was part of this wealth that he had that he received down in Egypt. Abraham, Abram, Abraham, same guy, you know. I'm going to try to keep it straight. I know his name's Abram until he changes his name to Abram, but uh, yeah, still a little grace if you got it. So Abram, he may have left Egypt financially better off, but his trip to the world, it actually cost him in several different ways. There was a tremendous cost to it. There's such a huge price for taking matters into our own hands and being disobedient to what the Lord has told us to do. Abram's financial gain was at the expense of his testimony, as we saw last week. It hindered, his disobedience hindered his relationship with God, as we're about to see. The time that he spent there in Egypt was wasted, unproductive, just empty years. Abram's disobedience caused his nephew to stumble. His disobedience had a tremendous, disastrous effect on Lot. Unfortunately, it translated in Lot's life that he would end up losing his family. Much of what we're going to read about Lot comes from the seeds that were planted by his uncle, seeds that were planted in his life by Abram's witness. You know, our sin, and this is an important lesson, our sin never just affects ourselves. Sin's effects are so far-reaching. I mean, we don't even know... So that's why we need to be so very careful to live our lives in such a way that we don't stumble another. You know it must have broken Abram's heart too when he sees the direction that Lot is going in his life. You know, because the seeds that were planted by him, you know it just broke Abram's heart. But Abram's a man. He's learning. He's under construction. He's not yet what he's going to be. He's learning to walk by faith, not by sight. He's growing. Verse 3, it says, And he went out on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. 
between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Even though Abram came back from Egypt with a great deal of riches, he returns to the same place he was before. He's right back where he started. Essentially, Abram's time in Egypt, like I said earlier, it's just been wasted. God could have and would have provided for Abram in the land of Canaan. He would have provided all of his needs. He looked at the circumstances, though. He made a decision to take matters in his own hands, and he went down to Egypt. And during this time in Egypt, there's no record of the Lord having spoken to him, no record of the Lord appearing to him. There's no record of Abram building an altar. There's no record of him crying out to the Lord at all. Abram in Egypt is a picture of him being in his flesh. Abram in Egypt is a picture of him maybe going to the world in a hard time just to seek help. It's a picture of backsliding. It's a picture of just going backwards in life. It was a waste of time. And it would appear that during this time, he's not enjoying any communion with God. He wasn't hearing from God. He's just empty. The relationship he had with God prior to going to Egypt, it's gone. So what does Abraham do? Well, he very wisely goes back to Bethel. He returned to the place where his relationship with the Lord was rich and fulfilling. He went back to the place where God had appeared to him. Sure, you know, it was someplace between a heap of ruin and the house of God, but being there with God was better than any other place he could be without God. Sure, he's wealthier and better off financially, but at what cost? He gained all that while his relationship with God was suffering. It wasn't worth it. So he very wisely, he returns to the place where he had sweet fellowship with the Lord. And I want you to know today, maybe if you find yourself someplace other than where you once were, if you find yourself someplace that you thought that you never would be, if you find yourself someplace as a result of not trusting in the Lord, as a result of taking matters into your own hand, if you used to find joy, if you used to find encouragement in prayer and in Bible study and devotion, because that's where you knew the Lord would meet you, but now you're just feeling empty and alone because you've just drifted. Maybe you're better off in the eyes of the world, but I want you to know today, the Lord would call you back to that place where you once were where you were building altars and worshiping him. If you've drifted, the Lord would call you back to a place where you once were, where you experienced him in his fullness. Jesus speaking to the church of Ephesus, you remember he told them that they had left their first love. It doesn't say they lost it. They left it. 
right? And what does he say to them? What was the prescription, the remedy for leaving their first love? What does he say? He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Revelation 2.5. Remember when you were a kid, I mean, if you're my age, you remember hearing about the three R's. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. You know, I never understood the three R's because to me it just looked a lot like one R, a W, and an A. I didn't get it, right? But here, Revelation 2.5, this is the real three R's. Remember, repent, and redo. That's the prescription if you've drifted. If you're no longer in a place of communion with God where you're hearing from Him, what should you do? You go back to that place you last heard from the Lord. You know, you go back to that place that you knew that you were in communion with God, where you knew that you were in His will. You go back to Bethel. I just wonder tonight, if you've drifted, if you find yourself someplace outside of the will of God, can you hear the Lord's voice calling you back to Bethel? Because you know what? He's calling you back tonight. If you've drifted, he's calling you back tonight. He's calling you back to himself where you can enjoy him and his presence in your life. If you'll humble yourself before the Lord and confess to him that you've drifted, you know what? He's going to cleanse you and he's going to fill you with his Holy Spirit and he's going to lift you up. He's going to bless you. And he'll accept you and draw you to himself. His heart is that we would experience him and fellowship with him in fullness. His heart is to restore you tonight if you've drifted. Well, verse 4, it says, Abraham called on the name of the Lord. And what we see here is this fresh rededication. It's a fresh reconsecration of his life to the Lord. And again, I just want to encourage you to follow Abraham's example. If you've drifted, if you've wandered, turn back to the Lord. Get back to Bethel. Be restored. You know, it's a glorious, life-changing event that will take place. You'll experience God in a fuller measure. You'll have communion with Him. If you'll just return to the one that was willing to give his life to save you from your sins. When you make the kind of mistakes that Abram has made, you know, you can feel, I mean, tell you the truth, I know this feeling a lot, making mistakes. You can just feel embarrassed. You can just feel stupid. And Abraham is such a good example to us because he doesn't get bogged down with condemnation, thinking that, you know, the Lord's mad at him, thinking that the Lord's peeved with him. You know, he doesn't get bogged down with that. And, you know, the devil, he'll bring this condemnation and he'll try to keep you from getting back to God after you've messed up. You know, he'll say, you know, are you really planning on praying? <laughs> You're kidding me, right? You think you can just go to God now? You just think that you can go to God and he's going to take you back like nothing's ever happened after what you did? Oh, man. Why don't you just lay low for a month or two till God kind of cools down? Right now, he's a little bit upset. You can't just go back to his throne. 
and be received by him like nothing's ever happened. I mean, the devil will tell you, just, just think for a minute about everything that you've done. Just think about what you've done. You know, it just doesn't work that way. He doesn't just receive you. And you know, it's not true. The devil's a liar. That's exactly what happens. He totally will receive you. You humble yourself, man. He's going to receive you. If you just make a move towards repentance, God is going to run to you. And that's the whole story of the prodigal son, right? It's a picture of the father's heart to receive you again. Remember in the story of the prodigal's father, I mean, he sees his son afar off. And what does it say? He says he runs to him. He runs to him. He puts a robe around him, puts a ring on him. I mean, he celebrates that his son has returned. And Jesus said, I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. God is overjoyed when we turn to him after we've drifted. He's not angry at all. Turning back to God after a season of failure is, is exactly what we need to do. We can't isolate ourselves from God or from fellowship. Verse 5, Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you'll take the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if you'll go to the right, then I'll go to the left. Now, what's going on here, what we're going to see here is this contrast between Abram and Lot. But I want to just stop here for a minute and make a brief comment before we go on. It seems to me that Abram, he's had enough of strife in his life up to this point. I mean, he's just ready to follow the Lord. Have you ever experienced that when you're just so tired of all the negative actions that have come into your life through your mistakes? You kind of get beat down, the fighting that goes on, whatever it is, and you just get to a place where you just surrender. And I think that's where Abraham's at. He's happy to be back in the land. He's built an altar. He's back in fellowship with God. He's ready for the hardships just to be over. And now the people around him, they're arguing, they're locking horns. And I think it's interesting for us to note that God will use little things in our lives to get us where he wants us to be. Remember Acts chapter 15, God uses little strife, a little contention between Paul and Barnabas, right? Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them on their second missionary journey, even though he abandoned them during the first missionary journey. Paul insisted that they not take John Mark with them on their second missionary journey because he backed out. When the going got tough, he left, you know, on the last trip. So which one was right? Who was right, Paul or Barnabas? 
Well, they were both right. Barnabas was right to allow a young man to, to make mistakes and then to give him another chance, right? And I'm so thankful for Barnabas in my life. But you know, Paul was right also in that missions are difficult. And people who are not prepared and people who are not committed to the work, they shouldn't go because it's a, they're difficult and it just eat you up and spit you out, right? But the result, God using this strife, you know what, the result was that Paul and Barnabas, they separate. And now instead of one mission team, they become two mission teams. And now they're covering twice the area. Here, God uses strife to get Abraham to finally separate from Lot. God uses it to get Abram by himself. And I think what we're seeing here is Abram's growth. I think he's finally come to a place where he realizes that God is able, that no one can take the promises of God away from him. So, Lot, if you want to take the left, I'll go to the right. If you want to go to the right, I'll go to the left. Abram is learning to let go and let God. Where Lot, he's not there yet. He's still taking hold and trying to take control. And I think we're seeing Abram, he's just content and secure in the Lord at this point in his life. He's growing. And you know what? We're growing too. We haven't arrived where God wants us to be. We're not there yet. But you know what? God's not done with us yet either. There's still more work to be done in each of our lives. Verse 10, it says, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zor. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. I mean, this is a mistake of unbelievable proportions here, Lot. What are you doing? Here we read that Lot pitches his tent towards Sodom, right? It's the idea is it's facing Sodom, right? He wakes up in the morning. He sees the city. He sees the lights. He sees the strip. He sees all the glamour, whatever. But in Genesis 14, what we're going to see is Lot now moved into the city. He's living in this wicked city of Sodom. And then in Genesis 19, we're going to see him sitting in the gate. He's an elder of the city of Sodom. And it all started with him looking with his eyes and choosing for himself. There's no mention of him seeking God or praying, asking God's direction. Verse 13 says, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And this is the first mention of the men of Sodom and their wickedness. And we're going to learn a lot about the wickedness of this city as we go on. But what I think the Lord is laying out for us here is this important contrast, this comparison of Lot and Abram, right? We're going to notice the wisdom of Abram and we're going to notice the weakness of Lot. One, we see the wisdom of Abram. The first thing we want to notice is in verse 8, right? 
there was a problem beginning to spring up between Abram and Lot, between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. And in wisdom, Abram goes to Lot alone to settle things between them, right? Verse eight says, so Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me. We see Abram go to Lot. He doesn't send one of his servants. He doesn't send one of his herdsmen. He doesn't talk behind Lot's back. He just doesn't get any other people involved. What does he do? He goes to Lot. And what did Jesus say? Matthew 18, he said, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Matthew 18, 15. If there's strife between you and a brother, you know what you're to do is you're to go to him alone. And the purpose of going to him alone is that you might gain the brother, right? Here we see the wisdom of Abram. A few Sundays ago, we heard Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, therefore... If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If you're sitting in Bible study and you remember that, you know, your brother has something against you, Jesus says, go to him and ask him to forgive you, right? You're to make things right between your brother. Now what you don't do, okay, you don't do and say, you know what? Listen, I've hated you for the last five years. That thing that you did made me want to kill you in my heart. You know, that's exactly what you don't want to do. You don't want to just unload on somebody and just leave them there wounded to bleed out in the street, you know, while you feel so much better about yourself. Where's the love in that? If you have something against your brother, you take it to the Lord let him deal with you and remove it. Jesus says, if you remember someone has something against you, then you go to them. You go to your brother. Not if you have something against them. If they have something against you, you go to them. You're to get things right with them. You're to ask them to forgive you for whatever action that was offensive to them, that, that caused them to, to stumble or or whatever the case may be. So here we see the wisdom of Abram going directly to Lot. The second thing we see, not only do we see the, the wisdom of Abram, but we see that Abram has discernment too. Look at verse seven. The Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelt in the land. You know, sometimes you're reading through your Bible, you read something like that, and you either miss the point or you say, gosh, I wonder why that's there. Well, the Canaanites, it says, look at it, verse 7, the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abraham said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. It would seem to suggest that Abram's learned his lesson. He was already a poor witness to Pharaoh, and now he's aware that Others are looking on. Now he's aware that his actions have consequences and he doesn't want to repeat these same mistakes. Being rebuked by a pagan king, I mean, you're, you're a godly man and a pagan, I don't care if he's Pharaoh or not, some pagan rebukes you. I mean, it's humbling, right? And now it seems 
that Abram's grown through that trial. He's grown. It's through the trials of life that God brings growth into our lives. Abram, he knows the Canaanites and the Perizzites. They're in the land and they're watching. And now Abram seeks to be a good witness to them. The next thing we see in Abram's life is this depth, right? We see the wisdom of Abram in that he goes directly to Lot. Secondly, we see the wisdom in, in Abram in that he has discernment, um, taking note that the Canaanites and the Perizzites are watching. And thirdly, we see this depth in Abraham's life in that he seeks to be a peacemaker. Romans 12, 18 says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes there's nothing you can do. It says, but as much as depends on you, if it's possible, do all you can do to live peaceably with all men, with other people. Listen to what Hebrews 12, 14 says. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. We're to be actively pursuing peace as followers of Christ. If there's a problem or strife with a brother, you're to pursue peace with that brother. If you're not at peace with others, then you're not going to see God the way he wants you to see him. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and said that they were carnal because the strife and this division that was rampant within the church. We see this depth in Abraham here. He wants to be at peace with Lot. And don't forget, Abraham is older and he's actually much stronger than Lot. But for the sake of peace, we see Abram's willingness to humble himself before his nephew. What an example that is to us. Humility, what an example. Abram is being tremendously humble by saying, you know Lot, you choose. You know what's important to me is that we're okay. The land isn't what I'm concerned about. I don't care about the inheritance. I care about you and I care about pleasing God, following God. Abraham, he also fulfills a New Testament principle that we see in Philippians 2.4. It's this principle of love where Paul said, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Abraham doesn't yield to Lot out of weakness, but out of love and trust in God. Such depth that we see in Abraham's life at this point. But then you contrast Abram, this man of God, and this wisdom of God in his life, and you contrast that with Lot, and you see the weakness that's in Lot's life. First thing we see is that, that Lot, he has a weakness in his devotions. Right? As you go through these chapters and you get to know Lot, you see that he had servants, he had cattle and camels and tents and lots of possession. He was wealthy, but where Abram was building altars and worshiping God and calling on the name of the Lord, we don't read any place of Lot building any altars. We don't see Lot at all calling upon the name of the Lord. We don't read any place that the Lord appears to Lot. 
You know, the devotional life is absent in Lot. It would seem completely. He's weak in devotion in communion with God. He's weak in prayer. Now, don't misunderstand. Lot saved. 1 Peter 2.7 describes Lot as a righteous man. He was saved, but at the same time, he was weak in devotion and it caused problems in his life. It caused his walk with God to suffer. And I think it would benefit all of us if we would just stop and think for a minute. Just stop right here and ask ourselves, who am I more like? Am I a, a man of communion with the Lord? Am, am I a man of devotion like Abram was? Am I a man who's building altars? Am I a man that makes prayer a priority in his life and calling on the Lord? Am I making that a priority in my life? Am I hearing from the Lord? Am I seeing the Lord working in a daily basis in my life? Or is all of that lacking in my life? Am I more like Lot than I am like Abram? You know, am I weak in prayer and devotion? Seriously, I think it would benefit all of us to just take a minute and think through these kinds of things, just to honestly assess where we're at with the Lord. And if you find yourself weak in any of these areas, I want to encourage you to be an altar builder. You know, make time tomorrow morning to get with the Lord to open your Bible, to read and to pray, calling on his name. Join us this Saturday evening. Join us every Saturday evening, six to seven for prayer. And I tell you what, it's such a beautiful ministry. You know, you just have to start someplace. Why not start tomorrow morning? Start reading through the word of God. I was a Christian probably 10, 15 years, something like that, before I read through the Bible cover to cover for the first time. And when I decided to do it, I tell you, I was surprised because as I'm reading, I'm like, hey, I remember that story. Hey, I heard that story in Sunday school. I was surprised all the things that I'd known, I had no idea where they were, but now I'm reading it. It's right there before me. It was amazing. I can't tell you how good it felt. Make time for reading the word in your life. Make time for seeking the Lord and see how the Lord will meet you. And I want to encourage you. Listen, church family, I want to encourage you today. Read the Bible with your kids or with your grandkids. Make prayer and reading the word of God a central part of your lives, a central part of your family. And then sit back and see what God will do in the lives of your kids and in the lives of your grandkids. It's going to be glorious. Well, not only was Lot weak in devotions, but he was worldly in his desires. Lot was prideful. And the Bible very clearly teaches that those that are younger should submit themselves to those that are older, right? We're to respect our elders. We're to submit ourselves to elders. As younger people, we're to clothe ourselves in humility before our elders, to be in submission to our elders. Yet, Lot, he wasn't, right? Here we see Lot and his pride. Lot didn't humble himself and go to Abraham when there was strife. Lot doesn't humble himself and insist that Abraham makes the choice. No, no, please, Uncle Lot, you tell me, which way do you want to go? 
I'll, you go left, I'll go right. He doesn't do that. He doesn't, you know, humble himself to do that. It's Abram that humbles himself. Not only was Lot prideful, but he's also selfish. Look at verse 11. It says, then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan. At the very least, I want you to underline this in your mind. Underline it in your Bible. If you're not a Bible underliner, at least circle it in your mind, right? He chose for himself. Lot chose for himself, right? All that Abram and Sarai did for him. I mean, they adopted him and they took him into their family. All the blessing that Lot had, all the riches that Lot had, they had all come through Abram. And still he was thinking of himself. I mean, talk about selfish. Lot chose the good land. You know, I want that. You know, there's no, there's problems and there's strife, but Lot wants that, right? He's selfish and he's prideful. And selfishness and pride is so unattractive on a believer. Well, the third thing we see in regards to his worldly desires is his greed. First, he's prideful. Second, he's selfish. And thirdly, in regards to his worldly desires, is he was greedy. Look at verse 10. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan that was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zor. Lot looked at a well-watered land and thought, you know what? That's going to be good for business. He had cattle and, you know, the well-watered land, that's the best thing for business. It's a no-brainer. Of course, that's what you're going to choose, right? He saw dollar signs in his, well, maybe he didn't see dollar signs in his eyes. Probably saw shekel signs in his eyes, uh, whatever the case may be. But the problem was he looked and he chose what was good for business, what was going to make him a profit. But he didn't consider the effect that it would have on his family. He never considered the effect that the wickedness of Sodom would have on his family. And he's going to take his wife to Sodom and she's going to fall in love with it. And when God brings judgment on it, she's going to look back longing to be in Sodom. His girls they're going to grow wicked under this influence of this wicked city, the influence that Sodom will have on him. His greed, Lot's greed, is going to cost him his family. It's going to cost him everything. Sure, he saved, but you know what? If I'm in heaven and my kids wind up in hell, you know, how can you live with yourself? If I go to heaven and my kids go to hell. You know, your entire life has been wasted. It's been useless. It's a total failure. doesn't matter how many people I lead to the Lord. If my kids go to hell, you know what? It's not, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. What a sad moment this is in Lot's life. Lot's greed is going to destroy his family. Well, the next thing we see, the last thing, not only was he weak in his devotions and worldly in his desires, what we see here is Lot is wrong in his decisions. He was wrong in his decisions because he went on what it is that he saw. 
Again, verse 10, Lot lifted his eyes, saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zor. Lot, he walks by sight, not by faith. He went with what his eyes told him. He felt at the moment. He went with that instead of with what God had said, right? What a mistake that is. He lifted his eyes and said, yeah, that looks good. I think that's the way I'm going to go. I mean, <laughs> that sure looks like it's the right decision, right? Yeah. I mean, instead of calling on the Lord, seeking the Lord like his uncle Abram modeled for him, he could have saved himself so much heartache. Lot could have seen his family spared. You know, one of the first verses that I would imagine that every Christian learns, one of the first ones, maybe not the first one, but one of the first ones, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Lot didn't do that. He said, hey, that looks good. I got cattle. Of course, that's what I should do. I mean, no place in the Bible does it tell us to go with your gut feeling. No place in the Bible. I mean, this is the worst advice I hear from people sometimes in the church. Hey, follow your heart. No place in the Bible does it say follow your heart. Just, you know, just open your eyes. What are you supposed to do? Open your eyes. You got eyes, right? Just look. What are they telling you you should do? You know what? Gut feelings can be wrong. Again, no place in the Bible says follow your heart. What does the Bible say? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Is that what you want to follow? In your eyes, they can be fooled, right? The answer is to seek the Lord your God, and you'll find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. The Lord said, call to me. And I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. If only Lot would have called to the Lord. What a tragic mistake it is to make decisions based on what we see. Because, you know, you don't see what's going on behind the scenes. You know, God sees those things. We need to cry out to him for direction and for wisdom and save yourself from untold amounts of pain and discomfort. If we'll just look to him first. Well, verse 10, again, and Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zor. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot separated from him. We'll stop right there. Finally, as you see, Abram, he gets to where the Lord has originally called him to be. The original call back in Genesis chapter 12, what was it? Get out of your country, get away from your family, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And now those things, those commands are now complete in Abram's life. He's been obedient to those things in his life now. And now we're going to see God speaking to Abram. 
Now we're going to see God reaffirm the promise that he made to Abram. And the promise was to Abram alone. It wasn't to Abram and Lot. That's why they had to separate. The promise of the land was to Abram. Isn't that interesting? After Lot separated from him, it says, I think there's a principle here. If you're not willing to obey God's word in your life, well, He's willing to put obstacles in your path to make things difficult so that you will turn to him, so that you will cry out to him, so that you will seek him, so that you will seek to be obedient. If nothing, if nothing else, just to get away from those hardships. Like we said last week, you know, God offers an easy way and a hard way. And he's willing to use the hard things in life to get us to that place where we cry out, okay, Lord, I'm willing to just listen now. And you know what? It's not a bad thing. It's actually a loving thing. You know, when our kids were small, when your kids were small, you're probably just like us. Our kids are small. They'd step out in the street and we tell them, no, don't do that. That's dangerous. But if they persisted, if they just refused to listen, you know what I did was I spanked their little bottoms. Not because I didn't love them, I spanked their little bottom because the very reason that I do love them. Well, you know what? <laughs> there's an easy way and there's a hard way in life. And the choice is ours. Again, look up at verse 9 and, and you see this. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. It's like Abram saying, you know, what? I'm so tired of the bickering. I'm so tired of the fighting. Would you just separate from me, please? You know, the Lord allowed this strife to get Abram where he wanted to be. We mentioned it before. And again, the choice is ours. Another thing I want you to see is when we're obedient to the Lord, that brings revelation. When we're obedient to the Lord and what he's called us to do, it's then he'll give us our marching orders, the next step. He'll tell us the next thing that we need to do. Oftentimes, he won't tell us that next thing to do until we've completed the last thing he's told us to do. Well, continuing, verse 14. Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. It surprises me all this turmoil that's over the land of Israel, these peace talks to decide, you know, who gets what portion of the land of Israel. You know, the Bible's not confused about this at all. You know what? It's all Israel's land forever, right? It's the Lord's land. He's given it to Israel. It's not the United States land. It's not the UN land. And we have no business dividing it up and seeing, hey, we'll give a little bit here and give a little bit there. You know what? It's the Lord's land and he's given it to Israel forever. Verse 16 says, And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. What a promise here. I mean, Abram is childless. He's somewhere in his 70s or his 80s here. And you know what Romans 4.20 says? says Abram did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. I mean, he didn't hear this, this promise and just through unbelief, just like, 
How could it be? How is it possible? I don't have any kids. Give me some deep. It's not like that. He just believed it. He received it. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And that should be our response when he makes promises to us. When we read the Bible and those promises, that should be our response is just unwavering faith. Well, verse 17, here you go. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Now, I think there's something here for us too. God wants us to explore a land of promise. I mean, I just referenced it, right? That land of promise is the word of God. Man, it's the Bible that God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. It's in the Bible that we read that he's given us all things that pertain to this life and godliness. He wants us to walk through the word. He wants us to be men and women of the word, taking his promises to heart and holding on to them by faith. Verse 18, then Abraham moved his tent and went and dwelt by the timber tree of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. And so here we see Abram, and he's so beautiful, isn't it? Now he's in a new land. He's in a new area of the land. He's in a new neighborhood. And what's the first thing he does? He builds an altar. He worships the Lord. You know what? I just want to challenge each of us as the church, as the body that makes up Calvary Chapel, Truckee, Calvary on the Rock, I want to just challenge you. Let's be altar builders. Let's be men and women who call upon the name of the Lord. Let's be men and women who are not weak in devotion, but strong in devotion. Let's be men and women who are not weak in prayer, but mighty in prayer. Let's be worshipers of God, right? Let's be men and women that are obedient. No matter what it is his word says, Hey, we're going to commit to it. We're going to obey it. And let's be men and women who through devotion, through worship, through prayer, through obedience, then sit back and see what God will do on our behalf. Hey, my heart is to stir you for a closer walk with the Lord. My heart is to be stirred by you for a closer walk walk with the Lord. Man, we want to be iron, sharpening iron. We want to be encouraging each other to run the race, to submit to God and just yield to him and let him do whatever it is he wants to do. Hey, let's be that people. Let's be that church. If we are, that's going to be the most effective thing for this town of Truckee, hey, I'm telling you something. Listen, please. This town of Truckee needs us to be that church. They need us to be those men and women of God. Let's do it for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, I'm just so thankful for your word. And God, despite my inabilities to communicate, Lord, despite my shortcomings, Father, would you minister to us now? Would you implant your word? Would you implant your encouragement? God, would you take whatever it is that I've said and just bring it to the hearts of your people 
and encourage them with it, strengthen them with it, Lord. God, may we be a people that is just all in, committed, whatever the cost, to bringing glory to your name, Lord, denying ourselves, following after you, Lord. God, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Lord, thank you so much for this church. I'm so happy, so blessed to be part of this church, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace. May you shower your blessing upon us as a church and as on my brothers and sisters right now, Lord. Would you fill each one of us with your spirit? Lord, reveal yourself to us, Lord. Draw us to yourself, Lord. Father God, I love you. Father God, we love you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your substitutionary atonement, for taking our sin, for cleansing us, washing us, freeing us, and adopting us into to your family where we can cry out, Abba, Father. Lord God Almighty, we love you. Bless this church. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you don't know the Lord, I encourage you, humble yourself before the Lord. Agree with him that you've sinned. Turn from your sin. Turn to him. Allow him to wash you. If you want to make a decision like that to follow after the Lord, I made that decision 41 years ago, never regretted it. It's only been good. It's only been great. I've never left anything in the world that was any good, right? Everything God's called me to leave behind was harmful. And everything he's called me to has been wonderful. If you would like to enter into a life where you're walking with the Lord and you're getting to know him day by day and he's speaking to you through his word, get a hold of us at the church. Come by. Let me pray for you. Let me talk to you. Let me get a Bible in your hand. We don't want anything from you. We're not going to sign you up to be a member. You know, it's not like that. Just want to help you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior.